the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Mark. So this is good news. Why? Because to get to God, you don't have to go through a human being. You can go directly to God through Jesus Christ His Son. So this tearing of the curtain is very significant. This is the difference between approaching God through a person and approaching God directly through Jesus Christ. That is what the curtain means by being torn from top to bottom. Very, very significant. When Jesus died on the cross, the curtain in the temple tore from top to bottom. This curtain, as Pastor Gary explains today, separated the people from God's dwelling place. In essence, it was the barrier between sinful humans and the perfect Almighty Creator. There was no way to cross it without a sacrifice. But on that day, Jesus became the ultimate sacrifice. His blood was shed to cover your sins and to forever remove that barrier to God. If you accept Jesus as your stand-in, you can be in God's presence. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Mark, chapter 15, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. So verse 24, And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. Now that's 9 a.m. Because the the day basically was counted by sunrise. And so basically 6 a.m. was considered the first hour. So by the third hour, we're talking 9 a.m. So 9 a.m., he's nailed to the cross. And written, verse 26, written, the written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Luke tells us, Mark doesn't, but when you, again, the beauty of the four Gospels is you get four different angles. They don't contradict each other. The four Gospels complement each other. So what one Gospel doesn't say, you can get from another. So Luke tells us that one of the thieves repented and asked God for mercy, and the Lord gave him mercy and promised him that this day you will be with me in paradise. So of the two, you have these two criminals, one on his right, one on his left. One of them ends up coming under conviction and turns to Christ, Luke tells us. And verse 29 says, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, 
come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Again, they did at least to a point until one came under conviction. So, you know, imagine this scene. Again, look, you know, I know, and I referred to this last week, if you saw Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ movie, you get a rendering, a version of what things might have looked like. Notice, if you will, that some of these intense details are left out. The details of the act of crucifixion. The ancient Persians were the first ones to practice crucifixion. But the Romans really got it down to a science. And they, they wanted crucifixion to be a deterrent to crime. So that's why people were crucified along a road. And as it related to Jerusalem, particularly near a main entrance. So that as you're, as you're coming in, as you know, just somebody as a, making a journey to Jerusalem for whatever reason, and you see a few people hanging on a cross that the Romans have put there, you probably aren't going to commit too many crimes that day. All right? So it's a natural deterrent to crime. But the excruciating element of crucifixion is horrific. And it's as if God is saying to us, I I don't need you to know all those details. What I need you to simply know is my son died for you. My son died for you. Now, it makes interesting reading. If If you Google, you can Google 1986 JAMA report, the Journal of the American Medical Association. And an MD, a doctor, wrote... And it was published by JAMA in 1986. You can go home and Google it. The doctor's name is Dr. William Edwards. And Dr. Edwards wrote from a medical scientific standpoint what crucifixion was ultimately like. If you're interested in that kind of thing and you don't have a weak stomach, you can go home and Google that and read that kind of thing. And man, it's an eye-opener to the amount of pain and agony and how horrible crucifixion was. But again... God simply wants us to know the main point and not all the details about, you know, driving the nails and, and all of that, all the, that he experienced. He just simply wants us to know, listen, my son, Jesus Christ, died for the sins of the world. It was horrible. It was horrific. But you don't need to know necessarily all the details. You just need to know one, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That is a universal invitation. Jesus did not die for a select few. Jesus died for the world, for all who would believe and receive. And that invitation is available for anyone to put their faith in Christ, to believe in Him as Lord and Savior because of what He did for us. We didn't deserve it. We can't earn it. God did it by His love for us, made a decision from the foundation of the world that His Son should be crucified The lamb that was perfect was slain for your sins and my sins. Everything you've ever done and shall do, every thought you've ever had that was wicked and evil and shall have, every imaginable act of human wickedness was paid for by Jesus on the cross. Isn't that amazing? So it says in verse 18, verse 33 rather, that at the sixth hour, now this is 12 noon, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, in Aramaic, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's, he's quoting here from Psalm 22, and he is basically interpreting the darkness. He's nailed to the cross at 9 a.m. At 12 noon to 3 p.m., darkness comes over the whole land. So there's, you know, whether it's a solar eclipse, I don't know, but, but it's dark enough that it is describable. In this darkness, 
you know, imagine Jesus hanging there on the cross completely alone, and he is interpreting really the darkness. He's talking about here the cup of God's wrath, the inevitable consequences of unforgiveness is outer darkness. And he is describing that, and he's quoting from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus is bearing the sins of the world, there is this moment, it is this It is this difficult thing for us to comprehend, but there's this moment in time when Jesus is bearing the sins of the world and the repulse of that sin is obnoxious to God and yet God never abandons the Son and Jesus pays the price in full, but yet he expresses this, this, um, the consequence of sin that he's bearing for the sins of the world, not that he committed any sin, but that he's bearing your sin and my sin And he describes it by quoting Psalm 22, verse 1, that incredible loneliness of this moment and in the darkness. Well, it says then further that in verse 35, when some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last Verse 38 says, the curtain, now this is an interesting thing here because the scene is the crucifixion scene just on the outskirts of the old city, but now Mark is switching to something that's happening inside the old city Jerusalem in the temple itself. And this is what he writes, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and this is important wording here, from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. So there's, there's kind of a breakaway, you know, when you go to the movies and you, and you see a scene and then there's a breakaway scene and then it comes back to the original scene. So the original scene here is the site of the crucifixion, but then there's this brief breakaway and Mark describes something happening in the temple. And what he tells us is that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now what curtain? In the temple of Jerusalem, there was a curtain that separated two chambers within the temple. One chamber was called the holy place. And then there was this interior chamber called the most holy place, or also called the holy of holies. And separating the two was this gigantic curtain. Now, one of my favorite Bible commentaries for you guys who like to study through the Bible is a guy by the name of A.T. Robertson. And Robertson describes uh, from historical accounts that the curtain of the temple would have measured 60 feet from top to bottom, taking into account the dimensions of of the temple itself, and 30 feet from left to right, and that it was woven primarily out of goat hair, and the Bible gives this description about the curtain, uh, with with cherubim, a part of being woven into the curtain, uh, these, these angelic creatures, and that the thickness of the curtain was the thickness of a man's hand, and basically a man's hand from pinky to thumb is about nine to ten inches, stretched out, about nine to ten inches. So you have a 60 foot curtain, height, 30 feet in width, and the width, of a man's, the width of a man's hand, the fabric was the width of a man's hand. And this is that curtain by which the high priest would pass once a year, only once a year, the high priest would pass around the curtain to go to the most holy place with the blood of the animal to make sacrifice for the whole people of Israel. It was the most holy day. It was the day of atonement called Yom Kippur. They still call it Yom Kippur today on the Jewish calendar. 
And that was the only time once a year high priest could pass around the, the curtain. And boy, it was a sacred thing. You did not go in with sin on your heart. In fact, tradition says, we don't know this from the Bible, tradition says that they would put a rope around the high priest's ankle because you couldn't go in after him because the, the mercy seat was there. The, the Shekinah glory of God was there. And if you mess with God, you may not come out. And so tradition says that the high priest would go in with a rope tied around his ankle so when he'd get on the other side of the curtain, if he had done anything in his life and God chose to strike him dead, you could pull him back out. That's why they would put a rope around his ankle because you couldn't go in after his body. If you heard a big thump, looks like he didn't pay his taxes. Let's go ahead and, you know, pull the guy back out or whatever the deal is. That was a sacred and, and a special day once a year. Now, what is God saying by this cutaway scene? The moment of Jesus' crucifixion, the moment that he dies, the curtain of that temple split, not bottom to top, top to bottom. Why is that important? Because if it started from the bottom and went up, somebody could say that a person did that. A couple of priests got together and they just yanked it from the bottom until they tore the whole thing. No, no, no. This started at the top and went down. (sighs) Because God was saying, now... You don't have to get to me through a priest. You don't have to get to me through a man because the God-man, as Paul writes in his letter to Timothy, there's one mediator between God and man. Paul writes to Timothy, the God-man, Christ Jesus, because Jesus dies on the cross. Now, guess what? We get to go to the Father through Jesus. The tearing of the curtain in the temple was God's way of saying, now the invitation is for all who would believe. In what my son has done, there is now no wall of separation. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews captures this. In Hebrews 10, listen to verse 19 and 20. It says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, not the blood of an animal, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, that's Jesus, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. So this is good news. Why? Because to get to God, you don't have to go through a human being. You can go directly to God through Jesus Christ, his son. So this tearing of the curtain is very significant. This is the difference between approaching God through a person and approaching God directly through Jesus Christ. That is what the curtain means by being torn from top to bottom. Very, very significant. So, back then to the original scene, the centurion standing there by the foot of the cross, he realizes, I mean, he comes in a conviction and he comes to faith in Christ. There's darkness, there's earthquake, Jesus dies, and this centurion standing there comes under conviction. He says, surely this man was the Son of God. And verse 40 says, some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. Sometimes the ladies don't get much uh, press coverage in the the Bible as it relates to the ministry of Jesus because it often focuses on the 12 that he selected. But there were also some ladies who would travel with the Lord and their purpose was 
that they would use their skills and their abilities to help produce income to sustain the ministry of Jesus. They cared for his needs, not just some kind of emotional way, but, but in tangible ways. And in fact, that phrase there, they cared for his needs, in the King James it says they ministered unto him, and the Greek word is diakonos. We get our English word deacon from this term right here. Like in the, in the churches where you hear about deacons, deacons are a part of serving in the church and helping and caring for the needs of the people. You actually had some ladies, and they're named here, some of them who traveled with Jesus. And, you know, no doubt there was, there was very distinct, uh, you know, honorable, you know, there wasn't any kind of uh, compromising, you know, Jesus is with his 12, and then, you know, a bunch of ladies, and they're all camping together. You know, don't get that scene in your head. But it's the idea that, that in some proximity, these ladies also would travel uh, with the Lord and with his disciples, caring for their needs and being a part of those who ministered to him. So very, very important, very wonderful, the mention of these ladies here. Um, many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. Uh, notice the men are absent. Well, it tells us in uh, verse 42 that it was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. Now, this is where it gets a little, the timeline about the crucifixion of Jesus gets a little difficult here. I know traditionally we talk about Good Friday, that he's crucified on a Friday and arises on Sunday. That timeline is something that not everybody agrees with, including myself. Um, when it talks here about the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. In John 19, verse 31, when you look at the other Gospels and you compare things, in John 19, 31, John says it was a special Sabbath. Here's why. The day of preparation was the first day of unleavened bread on the Jewish calendar, and it was a sacred day that was to be observed like a Sabbath. And it is possible that you can have the day of preparation as a Sabbath day that butts up right against a regular Sabbath. Now, the regular Sabbath to the Jews starts sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. So Saturday is the Sabbath day for the Jews. It always has been. Sabbath is, is still technically the, you know, the day, although it's not about a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day, Colossians 3.16 tells us, but everything's been fulfilled in Christ. So we practice worshiping the Lord on Sundays now as a carryover of the resurrection celebration. But Sabbath, in technicality, is still Saturday. And it is likely that in this year, there was what we call a double Sabbath together. That there was a Friday Sabbath, because it was the day of preparation, and there was the regular Sabbath on Saturday. And that it is possible that Jesus, in fact, was crucified on Thursday. Now, look, it doesn't... Again, and I say this when I talk about the days of the crucifixion and stuff. It's, it is hard to get Jesus in the grave and risen after three days if he dies on a Friday. That math just is really, really hard. But I know traditionally we, we believe that, we embrace it, and I've heard all kinds of things like, well, the Jews counted partial days as whole days, whatever. But anyway, that's what we need to do to try to make the math work. It's funny math. But anyhow, um, at the end of the day, sincerely, it doesn't matter whether he died on a Friday or a Thursday. What matters is that he died for our sins, Right. That's what matters. We do know when he rose from the dead because the Bible's clear on that one. It says the first day of the week. So we know that's Sunday. So we get that one. But exactly what day he dies, not entirely sure. Could it be Thursday? Could it be Friday? It could be either. So it says, as it goes on, So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, 
This is, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Sanhedrin, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Now, when you look in the other Gospels, it tells us that Joseph of Arimathea was actually a disciple of Christ, though privately, because he's got clout and status. He's a member of the Jewish ruling council. So he's still not out there publicly with his, with his faith in Jesus. But it does tell us in Luke 23, 51 that Joseph of Arimathea dissented from the vote to crucify Jesus. And the Jewish in the Sanhedrin, remember reading earlier last week's study, that they took a vote about Jesus being crucified, about they're going to have to take him to Rome to get him crucified, to the Roman uh, government, uh, but that, they sh- that he should be put to death. Luke tells us Joseph of Arimathea dissented. He said, no, I'm not going to agree to this. And he's going to go and ask Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, verse 44 says that Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. And here's the reason he was surprised. It tells us that Jesus was crucified at the third hour, which is 9 a.m., and that he died at the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m. So he hung on the cross from 9 to 3, and he died in six hours. And that was very unusual. Uh, Some historical things that I dug up said that crucifixion could last generally a day and a half or two days, sometimes three, but the shortest recorded crucifixion when somebody was nailed to when they died was 13 hours. But generally it took a day or two for somebody to succumb to this horrific act of, of crucifixion. And generally people would die from a combination of either asphyxiation, can't breathe anymore, your lungs fill up with fluid, uh, cardiac arrest, usually those are the main two things. Remember Jesus' side was, was stabbed, Mark's gospel doesn't record it, and outflowed blood and water. And so the Roman soldiers pierced up underneath his rib cage and basically pierced the uh, pericardial sac around his heart, which had filled up with fluid. And so when that was pierced and water gushed out, really, Jesus died of a broken heart. I mean, you know, how, how telling for, for what he did for us. Pilate was amazed. And it says in verse 44, summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. And then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Now they can't do anything about it because by the time they get Jesus off the cross... And into the tomb, it's now hitting sunset, and it is starting a Sabbath. And if there are two Sabbaths back-to-back, if again, if he's crucified on a Thursday, and by sunset Thursday night, now there's a special Sabbath on Friday, because it's the first day of unleavened bread, followed by the regular Sabbath on Saturday. They still can't do any work. It's not until Sunday morning that they can actually go with the spices to not so much embalm his body, but it was as basically padded over the body of the dead to help with basically the odor of decomposition, and they would wrap him in linen. So now we have the scene of them going to the tomb, but they have to wait till the Sabbath, and in this case, probably two Sabbaths together were over. So chapter 16, it says this, that when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, this is Sunday, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? 
But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Now we know from the other Gospels that this is an angel. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary has been walking us through the book of Mark. More than the other gospel books, Mark seems to have been written in a way that communicates the fast-paced course of Jesus' ministry, helping us realize it was only for a short time. While the book of Matthew focused on proving Jesus as king, Mark focused on Jesus as a servant. Jesus repeatedly displayed his servant's heart through the various miracles he performed, caring for others above himself. Jesus' example of a servant is something that we should be humbled by and should follow in his footsteps by serving others. We'd like to take a step in that direction by serving you in some way. Can we be praying for you? We'd love to know what's on our listeners' hearts. If you're willing to share with us, our email address is prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. We'd love to meet you, too. Come join us this weekend at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg. We're meeting in person as well as online, and you can find all the information you need on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. While you're there, you'll find additional teachings from this series in Mark and other series. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in to hear Pastor Gary on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know